If you have a Bible, let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. You can find that in the Pew Bibles on page 1075. If you're new to the Bible, the big number is the chapter and the small numbers are the verses. So really easy for the chapter. It's the first one. And then the verses uh, will go through, and those will be what I'm pointing at uh, as we look at the text together. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help as we, as we read his word. Father, we pray now that you would help us to get a hold of what you've done in the new birth for everyone in Christ. God, help us. Help me to say it. Lord, help us to believe it. Father, we pray that if any of us in this room don't know this reality, we pray that you might do it today, right now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last night, a few of us gathered at Forestdale Baptist Church to sort of commemorate and close Grace Harbor Church, Cape Cod. It was a church plant. It lasted about seven years, and through various circumstances and reasons, uh, ended up needing to close, and the members uh, have gone to other churches. And last night, a man named August Beekman got up to pray a prayer of thanksgiving. So that those that wanted to gathered to just sort of thank God for the years that were spent and the things that he did do uh, in their midst. And August Beekman stood up and said, this before he prayed. He said, the whole life of a Christian is one of thankfulness. To live with an awareness of the profound salvation that God has accomplished for us. And I don't think it could hardly be said better. That's, that's the way Christians are supposed to live through this life. We live in the awareness of what God has done in saving us through Jesus on the cross. We, we live in that reality. It, it shapes our mind. It shapes our attitude. It shapes our hopes. It shapes our actions. It's the whole thing. And so we live in that. And if you live in that, you're, you're, your whole life's going to be one of thanksgiving and praise. And what was so helpful about August Beekman saying that, in my opinion, as I was thinking about this text, is that that's exactly what this text is urging us to live in and to do. Look at how the verse 3 just begins. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That word blessed is a religious word, right? And so we don't really use it a lot, and we're always kind of wondering, what exactly does that mean? And it simply means to say good things. Say good things. That's the literal meaning of the word blessed. Say good things. And so what it's saying is good things about God. Praise to God. That, that's it. So remember last week we looked at verses 1 and 2. and it, it, we, we saw there that we are chosen people living as exiles. But we were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. Ahead of time, before time even began, God began to act on our behalf. And the spirit in time and space did a sanctifying work, he says there in verse 2, to set us apart to God. And then what he did in doing that is he set us apart to Jesus to trust in him and be sprinkled by his blood through his obedience. 
And in that, and because of that, he then turns and he says, so blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we are to do and live in. If you take notes, you could write this down as the main thing that God wants you to do today. And that is live your whole life in the praise to God. Live your whole life in the praise to God. Three ways he exhorts us to do this, or reasons you could say. The first one is we should praise him because he fathered us into his family. That's verses 3 and 4. He fathered us into his family. The second reason he gives that we should praise him is because he guards us with a garrison of heaven. He guards us with the garrison of heaven. That's verse 5. And then the third reason he gives is that he gives us a future. We should praise him because he gives us a future. We should praise him because he's fathered us into his family. We should praise him because he guards us with a garrison of heaven. And we should praise him because he gives us a future. Let's read the text. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. We should bless God because he's fathered us into his family. Another way that we could approach this text to help us understand its truths is you could ask this question. What do we mean when we say that we've been saved? We sang a song just a few minutes ago, He Saved My Soul. What does it mean to be saved? There's a lot of ways that the Bible unpacks that for us, but this passage gives us several important things to think about. So, Think about that. Answer that question as we look through this text. What does it mean to be saved? Well, last week we said that though they are exiles in their hometown, they have a family. right? They're chosen, which means they're the people of God. They belong to him. Christians are chosen people of God from eternity past. And so the Holy Spirit has worked in our minds and hearts to set us apart to God so that we get all the benefits of God's election. Well, here in verse 3, Peter calls this being born again. So another way to refer to what verse 2 was unpacking for us is here in verse 3, he's caused us to be born again. Or the uh, CSB says he's given us a new birth. And just like everything else in verse 2, this is something God causes or God gives. So God is praised because he's the one that brings it about. Now, it's, it, it, what this means is to have a new beginning. Just like the way we were born from our parents into this life, you know, we didn't, we didn't uh, choose that ahead of time. We didn't decide where we'd be born. We didn't decide what family we'd go into. We were just born. And when we were born, all kinds of things were true of us at that moment. All outside of our control, but true and, and reality for us. Well, in the, in the gospel, it's more than just a new beginning. It's a whole new life. 
When God calls us to be born again, he gives us an entire whole new life. Just like on our birthday, we received a name. We came into a particular place in life and a family and all that comes with it. God has birthed us into his family and we get a name and all that comes with it. He says new birth. And when we hear that, what do you think of? How do you think of the new birth? There's there's probably one key verse that you immediately go to in your mind. And that's in John chapter 3. When Jesus said to Nicodemus, haven't you read that you must be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven? Flesh and blood can't enter the kingdom of heaven. So we have to be born anew by the spirit, he says there. And so when we think about new birth, we tend to think of the effect that that has on us. How our mind changes, our heart changes, our desires change. We now want to live for God instead of living for ourselves. The passions that drive us become secondary. We don't say those are our identity anymore. But we say Jesus is our identity and those speak to our passions. And we evaluate our passions in light of who we are in Jesus. All that changes, right? That's new birth. But here in this passage, Peter is not talking about the change in us that new birth has happened to us or or what it brings about. Instead, he's focused on the fathering aspect of bringing someone into your family. So do you see what I mean by that? Look again what he says in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope, into an inheritance that is kept, it's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept for you. He's not talking about the change that's affected in us, but the change that's given to us in the new birth. The impact of what God has done is total transformation of our identity. We get a name chosen by God. We get a standing a person in the family of God, the creator. We get a heritage. All of our brothers and sisters from all throughout time that have called upon the name of the Lord and trusted in him and all who will come after us if the Lord tarries. We get a heritage and a family that we were joined into. We get an inheritance. We get an outlook and a future prospect. All because of new birth. I like the way Juan Sanchez put it. He, he, he draws this out by pointing out how we derive from our parents an identity that's cultural, physical, sociological. It has a reputation with it. Names used to mean a lot in small towns especially, right? If you were born into a certain family, you were already out or you were already in. Still works that way in some places around the world. But your name and what you were birthed into shapes your whole life. He says, we may spend our lives reinforcing that inheritance or struggling against it, but we are shaped by it. So the person who doesn't like the heritage that they received and the name they got and the place they were born, you spend your whole life trying to fight that and try to get out of that and say, say, that's not going to be me, right? But still you're being shaped by the thing that you're fighting against to not be like. On the other hand, if you, if you were born into a family with a name and a heritage that you appreciate, then there's a lot of pressure. You need to live up to that. You need to see that forward. You need to pass that on. And so both, in both ways, it shapes our lives. Now imagine if you were born into one of the many large slums around the world. Perhaps Kaibera in Nairobi, Kenya, that has 700,000 people living in squalor with open sewers 
makeshift houses, most over half the population with no jobs and no opportunities for jobs, open garbage heaps everywhere where most people live off of $1 a day. That's just one slum in one location. Now imagine if you're birthed there, what does that shape in your life? What are your prospects for life? Certainly you can make something from it. People do. Some people come out of it. Some people are very innovative in those situations as, as the housing that they've constructed out of sometimes nothing proves. But if, as you look out on your life, you're, you're thinking, I, I, I'm pretty held back here. I don't have a lot of opportunity. I don't have a lot of prospects in front of me. But what if you were born there, but somehow a Downton, a Downton Abbey family got a hold of you and brought you to their house? And they said, you are in our family now. You're going to have our name, and everything that we have is yours. Your entire future has just changed forever. You will never be the same. What does it mean to be saved? It means to be born again by God, born into his family. And all that comes with being born into his family comes with that. Now, you need to hear this today. Some some of us in particular, when you hear these things and you hear that blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ because he's given us new birth into a living hope. Some of us didn't have fathers. Some of us never got the tender care that you needed. You weren't taught important things that only a father can teach you. And it leaves you wondering who you are and how you're going to make it in the world at times. You might feel like you spend your whole life fighting to overcome what you lacked in that. Maybe you didn't know him. He wasn't around. Maybe he died early or he he was just a jerk. But listen, if you are in Jesus, you have a father who has birthed you on purpose because he wanted you into his family. You have a father. And it doesn't matter what you missed out on or what you didn't have. You have him. And he has you. And your whole prospects are different. They are not controlled by what you didn't get from your dad. They're controlled by what you get from the heavenly father. You need to know that today. You need to hear that. You have a father. There are four aspects in this in these verses that he draws, he uses to draw out uh, what this means and how it came to us. The first one that he says there is, it, is that it's according to God's great mercy. It's according to God's great mercy. How is it that we came to the place to be born again? Well, it is by God's mercy. A Christian knows God's mercy is neither deserved and nor should it be presumed. That's one of the marks of of knowing that the Lord is working in your life. You you see, a lot of people assume and presume that God will be merciful to them. Not because they find the mercy of God that the Bible talks about in the character of God, but because by virtue of the fact that they feel like they deserve it. Well, of course God will be merciful because he'd be wrong not to be merciful to me. But that's presumptuous. And that's actually sin Because it presumes on the kindness of God when we as sinners in his face rebel against him and don't follow him. 
We don't live for him and we do what we want to do instead of what he wants to do without even maybe even ever even reading his word to find out what he wants us to do. And yet we presume on the mercy of God. But a Christian knows the mercy of God is actual mercy. We deserve something else entirely. We deserve his wrath. We deserve his punishment for our sins. We deserve to be his outcasts, not his family members. But it is according to his mercy that he has begotten us again. Which is why some of us are hesitant to accept this as fact. Some Christians struggle to believe that God will be merciful to them because you know, I don't deserve it. And what you need to know is that that's true, but you should believe that God is merciful because it's in his character to give his mercy to people who don't deserve it, not because they sought it and they did something to get it, but because he is merciful. That's who he is. What Peter emphasizes here when he says according to, he's emphasizing that that your new birth in Christ is in complete consonance with the mercy that's found in the character and nature of God. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean that when people act out of character, what do you do? You write it off, right? If it was something good, but they're generally not, you know, a kind person, you think, well, that was odd. That was very unlike him. I'm sure that won't last. If, if, it's, if it's the act, exact opposite, it's somebody who's generally uh, 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 good, but they do something crazy, you think, well, that's not them. They'd never do something like that. Well, they did do it this time. I understand, but that's just not their character. You, you, I just don't believe it. Right? So you doubt in both directions. But when it's in agreement with their character, you say, that's, that's it. That's exactly right. That's, that's, the, that's the person I know. And what Peter's telling us is that when it's according to God's great mercy, it's, it's accor- in accordance with his character. It's in accordance with who God is in his nature. That should comfort us. It should especially comfort those who doubt. I had a good friend. Well, it was my dad's good friend, but as a child, I thought of him as a good friend. He was an older brother who had been saved dramatically. I've mentioned him at times through the years, but his name was Gene Slayton. He's with the Lord now, and he loved the Lord greatly. He was involved in prison ministry, and he would go, and he he would always tell me how what he wanted to do when he got in there is just hug all those guys. He said, I would just go around and hug them, and I would say, Jesus loves you, and I love you. And that was like the hallmark of his life and ministry. And I remember him telling me as a young man, shortly after I'd become a Christian, and he said to me, he, he like grabbed me by the face and he said, listen, I want to tell you something. Wherever you go, you stand up straight and you hold your head up because you are a child of the king. You belong to him. So whatever's going on, you look straight. And I have carried that as, a, as, a, as an encouraging word with me. I, I want to pass it on to you. If you're in Christ today, you've been born again into his family. You are his child. And this is in a complete agreement with the character of his mercy. It's not in disagreement with his character. So he didn't, this isn't a fluke thing. This isn't an accident. It's not something that he'll, he'll, he'll take back later. God has done it in accordance with his great mercy. But he hasn't just born born us again. Look at the second aspect is, he says that we've been born again to a living hope. We've been birthed into a hope that's alive. 
Now, you got to know that this phrase meant a lot to Peter. I'm just going to assume that this is the way Peter talked about his hope after the resurrection. Because you remember, it was Peter who sort of lost it. <laughs> or he didn't sort of, he lost it, okay? So, so he was close with the Lord, he followed the Lord, but in the, in the, in the hour of the crucifixion, he said, I don't know the guy. Don't put me with him. And, and you know how he was crushed through that process. And Jesus warned him ahead of time. He said, Satan is asked to sift you, and he will, but afterwards you'll be restored. Right? Peter had all of, his, all of that revived, and all the joy and the hope and the life that he had heard and seen in Jesus was revived when Jesus of Nazareth was raised from the dead. His hope died when Jesus died. But his hope came alive when Jesus was raised from the dead. And from then on, his hope is alive. So when Peter says, we've been born again into a living hope, you have to, re- you have to hear what Peter's saying through his experience of despair and resurrection to see Jesus. And he's saying that's the hope that we have. It also means that, that when, we are resur- when, when the hope was resurrected, with Jesus, our hope that's, that's alive is tied to the resurrected life of Jesus. Notice how he ties it there. He says, he's caught, according to his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's through his resurrection that our hope was resurrected. And it's in the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead that we have that same hope. So it's according to God's mercy, and it's a alive or living hope. And then the third aspect is he says he's, we've been begotten again into an inheritance. Now, this is an important word. In, if, if you're a Jewish believer, you, you know the Old Testament, and you, when you hear that you have an inheritance, you think land. You think a, an inheritance, a place, a plot that's been carved out in the promised land with my name on it, my family name. And Peter says to these Gentiles, you have been born again into the inheritance that belongs to the people of God. You have a plot with your name on it. They were exiles, these people he writes to, in their hometown. They were experiencing what it was like to lose property, to lose social standing, to lose respect in the community to have buying power, to have political influence, to have a say-so at the local school board. They lost all of that, and they were experiencing what it was like to essentially be a refugee on the earth. Peter reminds them, listen, you can lose everything you've got in this life, and you still have everything worth having because you have an inheritance in Jesus. And look at the qualities that he describes it with. He says it's an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Isn't that amazing? It's imperishable. It can't be chipped away at by time and weather. Rust can't touch the metal of heaven. Uh, The value of the inheritance that we have in God never diminishes. Its, its, its value is always held steadily in the, in, in, the, in the economy of God. It's imperishable. It's undefiled. It cannot be made impure. 
the land that Israel had could be defiled. And it was defiled. And as it was defiled, uh, consequences came with that. But the inheritance that we have from God is untouched by sin. Our sin in this life is covered by the blood of Jesus. And because it's covered completely by the blood of Jesus, if you're in Jesus by faith, your sin does not make your inheritance polluted. It can't be touched. It's not in your hands to pollute. It's an inheritance that's imperishable, and it's an inheritance that is uh, undefiled, and it's also unfading. I've got a bookshelf in my house where the sun hits in the afternoon every afternoon. And over the years, all those books that are in that have all started to go white because the sun hits it, the power of the sun in the afternoon. And just over time, it just zaps all of the color out of the books. And when I pull those books down, I don't really even notice it until I pull one off and I open it up. And the the, the front cover is bright orange, but the side is like almost white. It's fading with time. The inheritance that we've been born into in Jesus never fades. It never diminishes in its color or its sheen or its value. Nothing about it. It reminds you of what Jesus had said when he encouraged people around him to labor not for the treasures of this life, but to store up treasures in heaven where neither rust nor moth nor thief, none of that stuff could touch it. The treasures of this world are not only fading and corruptible, but they have to be carefully protected and preserved. Think about where your treasures in this life are right now. Are they in a lot box? Are they laying out on the counter at home while you're here at church? Probably not. If they are, don't worry. It's okay. (laughs) I'm not trying to make you nervous. Maybe you have a safe in your house. We have to do that because thieves can get in. We have to get, do that because, because sunlight can hit it. We have, to, we have to keep even something like the Constitution of the United States under special glass, controlled under controlled air in low light. So that it would be preserved. But that's not true of our inheritance. Our inheritance in Christ is rust-proof, it's sin-proof, and it's time-proof. But there's one more thing he says here, and that is that it's thief-proof. The fourth aspect of our new birth that he talks about here is that it is kept in heaven for you. Our inheritance is kept in heaven for us. Now notice what he says in verse, at the end of verse 4. Kept in heaven for you. It's kept for us like a great trust until we're ready for it. He's already got it. It's entirely secured. It's full to the max. It, doesn't, it, it can't be touched by sin. No one can get a hold of it. No rust or sunlight will touch it and make it corrupt or make it fade. And he has it stored in the heavenly bank. And it sits there and it has your name on it until Jesus returns. It's kept for us. Where's your inheritance? What bank do you have it in? Who's got it? God has it. God has it. It's kept It's kept by the God who caused us to be born again. So a simple, obvious application is, I wonder how how can having an inheritance kept in heaven shape your experience of possessions in this life? Some of us doubt God's care for us because we lack certain things or we want things or we've lost things. 
And we get all bent out of shape. And we all understand why, of course. But I'm, I wonder, if you're, if you're in that position, how knowing that you have an inheritance in heaven that is kept by God, how that would shape the way you experience loss or lack. On the other hand, some of us have, have, have possessions. We don't experience that. And I want to ask you the same question. How, how does knowing that you have an inheritance in heaven shape the way that you think about the treasures that you have on this life and the way that you don't lack? You see, both directions can pull you away from this reality and it can make you numb to the power of the verses that are here in this text. We should bless God because he's fathered us into his family. We should also bless God because he guards us with the garrison of heaven. Look at verse 5. He says, you are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. He's just said that our inheritance is kept in heaven for us. Now he says, we are guarded for our inheritance. God has us protected on both ends. In heaven, he has the inheritance in his hand in his bank. On earth, he has you in his hands by his power. Both are protected. The word guarded here is used of military garrisons. It's the word that, it's the same word. It's not used a lot in the New Testament, but it's, it's the one Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 11.32 when, when he says that the governor of Damascus was guarding the city so that he had escaped through a window. So the word, it's, it's a word picture of, of a whole garrison that's been deployed by God to guard all the saints in Christ. If you belong in Christ, he has you guarded. You are guarded by God. That's incredible. We are kept by him in a way that is more powerful than an Abram's tank or a Roman legion or even a tiny little nuclear weapon. It's the power of God that guards us. And specifically, it's that power that raised him from the dead, raised Jesus from the dead. That same power is working in us to hold us until Jesus returns and everything is brought to its fullness. That's why he says, ready to be a salvation, for salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. The only side or the only role that we play here is to continue trusting in him. That's why he says that it's through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed. So what does it mean that God guards us through faith? Well, this is just getting at that active trust in God that God uses to guard and keep us. Remember at the start, I mentioned the prayer that August Wiegmann said last night. And he said, we live with an awareness of what God has accomplished for us. I think that's a good way to describe one of the aspects of faith. Living with the awareness of what God has accomplished. That awareness is something we trust in. You're aware of it. You're awake to it. You you think about it. And you evaluate things in light of it. That's faith active in your life. In circumstances. In situations. Faith is at work. And in that way, faith is like a rope from heaven that's tied to our hearts and keeps us in him. When a boat comes up to a dock of any kind, you have to tie it off to the cleat. And as long as it's tied off to the cleat, it won't pull out to sea and drift away. 
Faith is that rope from heaven to our hearts that must be maintained as we live life as exiles. And the way you arm yourself to hold on is you arm yourself with these truths. And you remind yourself chosen in God, though in exile. Uh, Born again in God to a living hope with an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and kept in heaven for me. And you arm yourself by living in that reality and living it out as praise to God. So we should praise God because he's birthed us into, into his family. We should praise God because he guards us with a garrison of heaven so that we can be confident that he will keep us all the way to the end. And the third thing that he has here is that we should bless God because he gives us a future. That's verses 6 through 9. He gives us a future. Look at what he says here. You rejoice in this, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials, so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which though perishable is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though not seeing him now, you believe in him. And you rejoice with an inexpressible and glorious joy because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. He says, in this, you rejoice. What is it that we rejoice in? Well, you could say it's the whole thing. But in the text, the closest thing that he has in mind is the last part of the previous verse. The last time. We rejoice in that last moment where Jesus will be revealed. How do you know that? From a few things. Well, first of all, notice what we're being kept for the future. We're being, the, whole, the whole thrust of what God is doing by guarding us is preserving us for something that's yet to come. And that thing happens when it's revealed, when Jesus is revealed. Look at the end of verse 7. After he's talking about the way trials work, he says, so that our faith may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then in verse 8, he he continues on to meditate on how we don't see Jesus now, but we will see him. The rejoicing that he's describing is mostly that rejoicing that's yet to come. It's tricky. Is he, is he trying to emphasize, do they rejoice now? Or is he trying to tell them, you should be rejoicing? Or is he telling them merely that they will rejoice? Well, as I said, I think he's, I think he's mostly saying, we will be rejoicing. But that doesn't exclude the first two. If the reality is, is that Jesus is coming again and on that day, faith will become sight and all of this world's trials will be put into high definition focus. If that's true, and if that's what the awareness that we live in in this life, then we live, we can live as people, though grieved with trials, who rejoice. You can actually live that way. You can live that way. The the rejoicing that that is coming 
is, is guarded in Christ and it, and, it, and it fuels rejoicing now, no matter what your trials are. Notice the way that he, he contrasts them with what he, what he says there in the following verse, um, or in the second part of the verse. He says, you rejoice in this, the coming of Jesus at the last time, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials. He assumes that these churches he's writing to are grieving. They're enduring trials. They're, they're, they're exiles in, a, in their hometown. This is not easy. This is hard. And a grief comes with that. It's hard to get up. It's hard to get dressed. It's hard to face people. They're grieving right now. But that's in contrast to the way that the rejoicing that's coming should be shaping their hearts and their minds. Now, we all know this. You you know how hope gets you through things. Some people hope for the weekend, right? We live for it, and sometimes... We measure the whole week by it. Or you say, I just, got, I just got to get to the end of the week. A pastor doesn't really say that, by the way. <laughs> it's like, it's the weekend. Yes, I know. You might say it on Mondays, but it's a little different. On Mondays, we, we, say, we say, oh, it's Monday. On Wednesday, what do we call that? It's hump day, right? Because we're measuring the whole week by the weekend. Almost there. We just got to get over the hump. And then we have for Friday, what do we have? TGIF. Thank God it's Friday. Because <laughs> the week's over and we're entering in the weekend. And it, and it gives this euphoric energy at work. Even, even in the air in the city on a Friday, you can feel it. Everybody is excited. That gets even worse when it's a long weekend, Right? Traffic gets larger. All of a sudden, everybody needs to go somewhere. There's, there, there's noise. People are rowdy. Everybody's wanting to joke, and everybody's kind of slacking off at work. And then it, it's even more if you're going on a trip, and you know that Saturday you have a flight, and it's like Thursday morning. You're not too worried about that email right now. You're thinking, this is probably something that can wait. And you start triaging everything, Right? That hope of what's about to come is shaping the way you're going through your day right there. And it's dictating what you do and how you talk and whether you laugh or you don't or whether you're chipper or whether you're dreading it. Of course, that's all just true of something so little as a passing few days off on the weekend. How much more an eternal inheritance that God has given to us, that's preserved by, with our name, kept in heaven by the power of God that you're being guarded for no matter what's going on in your life. That's incredible. Now, I want you to just see here, that's where his comments about trials come in. Sometimes we get, we get a little heavy on the suffering side of stuff, right? And, and that's here. You could do a whole, just mini sermon on what, how do you think about trials, and, and I'll, I'll give you some bullet points. You can write them down. Maybe you can preach it. But, but the, the, the thrust of this section is actually not focusing on the trials that are going on in their life. The thrust of it is the rejoicing. You're shaped. Listen, listen, exiles. You belong to God chosen by him. You've been birthed into a new life, a new inheritance, a new name. And you're guarded by him. I know you're going through trials and you're grieved right now. 
And then he says, let me just explain, let me give you a little bit of explanation as to why you're being grieved. And look at what he says. He says, first of all, they're temporary. They're temporary. No trial lasts forever, and their struggle, no matter what it is, will come to an end. Your struggle will come to an end. I don't know what you're facing. I don't know what it'll look like, but it it, it won't last forever because none of them do. Trials don't last forever. They're temporary. And he wants you to compare that with the eternal salvation that's given to you in Jesus. you got eternal salvation over here, eternal inheritance. You have temporary trial. You can get through what you're going because you have this over here. The second thing is he says it's necessary. Isn't that interesting? It's necessary. We all think of trials as something unnecessary and to be avoided, and we all understand why. But he says here that it's actually necessary. And you know why. We we are shaped and grown through trials and difficulties. We know that. That's taught throughout the Bible. But here, notice why and how. He says, verse 7, so that the proven character of your faith, and then skip that part for just a minute about gold, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The proven nature of your faith is what is at stake in the trial and the difficulty you're facing. He wants to bring that to the top. That's why trials happen. And you need that because you need to see that your faith is genuine and God wants to prove that your faith is genuine. Remember Abraham when he goes up to sacrifice Isaac? God lets him go all the way and it was a trial. He did not want to do that. But he went all the way to the point of pulling the knife out and God stopped him. And then he said, now I know that you fear me. Now, did God not know that? Of course he knew that. But it was proven in time and space through a trial that he went through. Every year in any sport, but in particular, it seems like college football, there's always a team that goes undefeated and makes it deep and high in the ratings and deep into the season. And everybody's going, I don't know if they're real. I don't know if they're real. They really haven't played anybody. You know, look at all these cupcake teams they've played. Where do they play somebody real? And those teams always need to fight all the way to the end because they have to overcome all of that and prove that they are legit. And sometimes they get blown out in national championships. <laughs> and everybody goes, yeah, I didn't, I didn't think they could do it. And it was, it's proven that though they're a good team, When they came up against a difficult team, a challenging team, it proved that they didn't have what it takes to beat that. When trials and difficulties come in our lives, it proves the character of our faith. And if you have genuine faith in Christ, you will go through it, you will get through it, and the proven nature of your faith will reveal itself. And look at what happens at the end of verse 7 again. It's going to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That goes both directions. But I think the main thing he's he's pointing out here is that it will result in praise, glory, and honor to us. God will praise you. Now, there's not many places in the Bible where the scriptures are teaching this, but but Jesus said it. Jesus said, "You, you on that last day, you want the divine accolade when you go before God. And he says, well done my good and faithful servant. That's praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You want to hear those words. I want to hear those words. 
When our faith becomes sight and we stand before Jesus, he will say, well done, good and faithful servant, praise, glory, and honor, and we will have joy that is inexpressible. And that joy inexpressible, as we hear those words, will result in mutual praise, glory, and honor to God. Because we will echo it back to him. And we will say, but you did the whole thing. You chose me before, before the foundation of the earth. You sanctified me by the work of the Spirit. You, Jesus, shed your blood and you were obedient to the Father and you applied that to me and you gave me new birth and here I stand in an inheritance that I didn't do anything to get. Praise be to God. Glory and honor and praise will be given to him. Difficulties get us ready for that. That's why we can rejoice in a trial. You can actually be thankful that God is working in you. All he means here when he talks about how gold is refined, he's just saying, look, it's really valuable and it's refined, but it also perishes. But something that's more valuable than gold refined is faith that's been tested. That faith is more precious than gold itself. That's what God's working in us. And he's doing it so that our fullness of joy in verse 8 would express itself on that day when we see Jesus. Though you've not seen him, he says, you love him. Though not seeing him now, you believe in him and you rejoice. You will rejoice with inexpressible and joyous uh, joy. Inexpressible. You're not going to have words to describe the joy in Jesus that you have when you lay your eyes on him. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, what you've heard this morning is about the the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was attested by God to be the son of God, and his perfect life was given up on the cross so that you, as a sinner, If you will admit and confess your sin and turn to him, everything that we've heard here will be true of you. Because God's great mercy is in complete agreement with forgiving sinners like you and like me. And so today, you should call on him and ask him for that mercy and that new birth. Christian, we should praise him. We should live a whole life praising God. God, and we should do it because he's fathered us into a family, his family. He guards us with his power, and he gives us a future that we can rejoice in. Let's pray. Father, we praise you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Hallelujah. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.